I want to share with you something that um, <clears throat> has been a burden on my heart for some time. And I feel that has taken us as a people, some of the Adventist people, into a path of deception and confusion. I put together a seminar last year for Heartland at camp meeting on futurism and on prophecy and so on and how that these things were actually creeping into the Adventist church. And I have now developed a seven-part series in which um, I will be doing at the general conference session there, you know, when we'll be holding meetings. Um, myself with um, well, Heartland speakers and then Marshall and Ron and Ty and the rest of us will all be there. But uh, I really burdens my heart because I, I guess when I look at these things, you know, I think of, you know, being an ex-Roman Catholic... You don't think, well, man, that's what, that's the same thing Rome taught for so long. And how in the world could we, as Protestants, you know, how could we come to the point when we're actually the remnant, where we're just drinking it in as though it's nothing, as though there's beautiful truth, they say, wonderful things, all is well and lovely. I want to read some statements to you by the servant of the Lord. I feel it's very vital, very strong statements, really, when you really think about them and the significance they have for us today. Because all these statements, she's talking about the church. And by the way, she's talking about the Seventh-day Adventist church. You know, in Matthew chapter 24, you know, Jesus there gave us a clear, detailed description of the signs of the times. But four times, Jesus mentioned there in verses 4, 5, 11, and 24 about deception and, you know, great, you know, deception would come to God's people and so on. And, you know, in verse 4, it said, Take heed that no man deceive you. That was the first thing he said in regard to the question that the disciples had asked, Tell us when this shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming in the end of the world? The servant of the Lord makes this statement, and she, by the way, is quoting Matthew 24, 4, at least a part of that uh, text. This is found in 7 Bible Commentary, page 952. She says, quote, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, that's to say that's a quotation taken right out of Matthew 24. The warnings of Christ on this matter are needed at this time, for delusions and deceptions will come among us and will multiply as we near the end. Bear in mind that trials of this character are to come upon us not only from without, but from within our own ranks. And so we know that many deceptions, at least uh, things that will take place, deception will come why, from within our own ranks. She says again in Five Testimonies, page 477, Do not forget the most dangerous snares. What kind of, what kind of snares? Well, she said the most dangerous. She didn't say dangerous snares. She said the most dangerous snares, which Satan has prepared for the church, will come through its own members. Now, the most dangerous snares that could be laid for the church, Satan is preparing, 
will come through its own members. And then finally, in First Elected Messages, page 122, she says this, We have far more to fear from within than from without. Isn't that a sad, really, statement? Do you think about that? We actually have, I have more to fear from Seventh-day Adventists than I do from the Baptists or the Catholics or the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians. I mean, isn't that really sad? But yet, nevertheless, it's true. We've got more fear from within than we do from without. My question is, you know, when we think about these statements that the servant of the Lord makes, I'm sure, you know, there are many things we're going to have to fear to watch out for and be careful about. But she does make one statement, there is one statement very clearly where one, an area in which we need to be guarding against or watching out for. She makes this statement in Testimony to Ministers, page 409 and 410. She says, many will stand in our pulpits. Now, where will they be standing? Not, it, it, well, where does it say? You tell me. Where she's, that's right. That's what she's talking about. You see? She said, many will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy. A torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. Now here they are, many standing in our own pulpits. They have a torch in their hands, and she says that that torch represented what? False prophecy. Now, where was this torch lit? That's right, Satan himself lit that torch. And they're standing in our own pulpits, preaching Satan's messages of false prophecy. You see, we, you and I have more to fear from within than we do from without. And one of the areas we need to fear about is she said that it would be false prophecy coming from within our own members, standing from our own pulpits. Now, I don't know how you feel about the spirit of prophecy, brothers and sisters, but I understand it from the Bible, my study of the Bible, that it is a gift that God has given to His church, and it says in Ephesians, for the perfecting of the saints. Now, we just covered the Melchizedek priesthood and we found that that priesthood was going to bring us perfection. And so we know that perfection is possible for the saints and so therefore Jesus in giving to his church the gift of prophecy was helping them to enable reach that point of, of perfection. And I believe the spirit of prophecy to be uh, totally, I don't have no question about it, that it is just as inspired as, as the prophets of the Old Testament and New Testament. And I have no problem with that. That's right, their prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, and of course in Acts you'll find that too. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew. And we'll look at some things here, Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, now... The title of my message is simply a warning why Israel failed. I want to take a look at the history of the children of Israel just before Jesus came the first time and when he actually came. 
and, uh, and then we're going to see this relevance for us today. And keeping in our minds that the subject matter upon which we will deal with is prophecy. Matthew chapter 23, this chapter here is known as the seven woes, where Jesus pronounced the woes upon the scribes, Pharisees, and lawyers. And then finally, in verse 38, he says, Behold, your house is left unto you how? Desolate. I said, your house is left desolate. And here Jesus actually pronounced the judgment upon children of Israel that, that it had come to an end. That uh, he knew that they would not repent of their sins. They refused to uh, follow in the footsteps of, of the, the Lord. And it's the most solemn declaration, really, when you think about it. It's an awesome declaration being made by Jesus that He actually pronounced upon the children of Israel that, it, that they had ceased to be God's children. That, that was the end. He, the destruction was going to come. Our house was desolate. And, of course, you know, the house being desolate was the Spirit of God leaving, you know, uh, the children as uh, Israel as a nation. Not that they could not be saved individually, but rather as a chosen people it had come to an end. You think about this when his declaration was made because when Jesus made this statement, he was making it to the church in his day. He was actually telling the church in his day that they had come to an end. And you think about this and the children of Israel, you think, well, how in the world could they come to this point? What happened? Why would God, you know say this to the children of Israel, something had to lead them in this pathway whereby they would receive the, the a declaration from God where they were finished as a people, as a chosen race, to be the instrument by which God would communicate the gospel to the, uh, to the world. If you look with me in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, here John records a statement about the children of Israel, in which I believe the reason why that God said that was the end. John chapter 1, notice me, verse 11. John chapter 1, verse 11. Talking about Jesus, it said, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. So it's very clear that when Jesus came to His own, His own people didn't even receive Him. God's own people did not even receive Him when He came. Now, I want to read some statements to you from the Sermon of the Lord. And I want you to listen to what she has to say to us in reference to the children of Israel just before Jesus came. Review and Herald, 1893, number 16. She said, quote, with the history of the children of Israel before us, let us take heed and be not found committing the same sins and following in the same way of unbelief. Now, simply all she's simply saying is, listen, the sins that the children of Israel were committing, at, at, um, and there's history before us, let's not be, commit the very same sins. You know, that's the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and verse 11. And where he simply said, you know, that all these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. In other words, all the things that have happened to the children of Israel are written for our admonition. That we don't follow in the same footsteps. That we don't commit the same sins. She makes another statement in Review and Herald, 1890. 
number seven. She says this, quote, The trials of the children of Israel and their attitude. Not just the trials, but their, their attitude. Just before the first coming of Christ have been presented before me again and again. Now, who were you think who was showing her? The Holy Spirit and the Lord in vision. Have been presented before me again and again to illustrate the position of the people of God in their experience before the second coming of Christ. That's a powerful statement. She actually said that I've been shown over and over again and again that what the children of Israel were doing, their attitude, their position at the first coming of Christ will be the same with God's people just before Jesus returns the second time. What happened to the children of Israel when Jesus came the first time? Only as we can understand what happened to the children of Israel and their position and attitude at the first coming can we see what's going to take place at the second coming just before he, Jesus returns. In Second Selected Messages, page 111, the servant of the Lord makes this statement. Satan is working that the history of the Jewish nation may be repeated in the experience of those who claim to believe present truth. Let me ask you a question. Who uh, is it that claimed to believe, believe present truth? Who is it? Now give me the denomination. Don't give me just... Who is it? That's, the, that's right, the SDAs. Right, now listen, I'm going to read that statement again now that we know who's this. Listen, Satan is working that the history of the Jewish nation may be repeated in the experience of those who claim to believe present truth. So Satan is trying to repeat the history of the Jews with the Seventh-day Adventist church. The Jews had the Old Testament scriptures and supposed themselves conversant with them. But they made a woeful mistake. The prophecies that refer to the glorious second appearing of Christ in the clouds of heaven they regarded as referring to His first coming. Because He did not come according to their expectation, they turned away from Him. Satan knew just how to take these men in his net and deceive and destroy them. The very same Satan is at work to undermine the faith of the people of God at this time. There are persons ready to catch up every new idea the prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation are misinterpreted. And so, just as Satan deceived God's people at the first coming of Jesus, so Satan will now try to reproduce the very same thing with the Seventh-day Adventist church just before Jesus returns. Now, where did the Jews go wrong at the first coming? That's right. It was, it was at prophecy, wasn't it? It was at prophecy. The subject matter that she dealt with was prophecy. Now, where is Satan going to try to get God's people, Seventh-day Adventists, just before the second coming? But she particularly names two books. Daniel and the Revelation. So we know this is, from this statement, we know that this will take place, or at least Satan will attempt to t do this, that he will try to repeat the history of the Jewish nation with the Seventh-day Adventist church in that he will try to deceive them in prophecy in regard to the books of Daniel and the Revelation. 
Now, if that's the case, which I believe, no question about it, that it is, we need to ask ourselves a question then. What were the Jews doing to prophecy at the first coming? When we can understand what they were doing to prophecy at the first coming, we will then understand what Satan will attempt to do to Seventh-day Adventists just before the second coming with the books of Daniel and Revelation. I'm going to give you three things and uh, show you at least some statements here about uh, what the servant of the Lord says in regard to what the, the Jews were doing. Three things, and this is all on prophecy. This is all dealing with prophecy. And I want you to listen to what the servant of the Lord says. Okay? When we find out what the Jews were doing to prophecy at the first coming of Jesus, we will then find out what Satan attempted to do to Seventh-day Adventists at the second coming with the books of Daniel and Revelation. Okay? You following along? Desire of Ages, page 30. The servant of the Lord says this, quote, They had, and she's referring to the Jewish people and the leaders, they had studied the prophecies, but without spiritual insight. Thus, they overlooked those scriptures that point to the humiliation of Christ's first advent and misapplied those that speak of the glory of His second coming. Pride obscured their vision. They interpreted prophecy in accordance with their selfish desires. So, very clearly in just this one statement, very quickly she indicates that they were doing what to prophecy? They were misapplying, misapplying prophecy. Why? They were taking prophecies in regard to the second coming and they were applying them where? To the first. All right? Review and Herald, September 5, 1899. The leaders of the Jewish nation had the Old Testament scriptures, which plainly foretold the manner of Christ's first advent. Through the prophet Isaiah, God had described the appearance and mission of Christ. And then she quotes Isaiah 53. Not the whole chapter, but, you know, parts of it. The leaders of Israel professed to understand the prophecies but they had received false ideas in regard to the manner of Christ's coming. Satan had deceived them, and all the glories of Christ's second advent they applied to his first appearing. All the wonderful events clustering around his second coming they looked for at his first. Very clearly, she indicates that, that uh, the... the um, Children of Israel had misunderstanding of prophecy, and she said that Satan had deceived them. And what did he deceive them to do? What, were they, what did he lead them to do? Why? To do what? Misapply the prophecies. All the prophecies that talk of the second coming, why they were applying to the first. And all those events that clustered around the second coming of Jesus, well, that's what they were looking for at his first coming. But she said that Satan had deceived them to do this. Then in second selected messages, Page 111, she says this, The Jews had the Old Testament scriptures and supposed themselves conversant with them. But they had made a woeful mistake. The prophecies that referred to the glorious second period of Christ in the clouds of heaven, they regarded as referring to His first coming. 
Now, just from those statements, we find very clearly that the servant of the Lord makes it absolutely crystal clear that the Jews were misinterpreting or misapplying and uh, reinterpreting prophecy. Now, notice they were reinterpreting and reapplying prophecy. Now, that's what they were doing. All right? Now, notice with me the second thing that they, that they were doing that we find from the testimony of the servant of the Lord and When you think about prophecy, and, 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 the, and really, you look at the Old Testament, all the prophecies regarding Christ coming, the first coming, I should say, and, the, and about the Messiah, there's over 300 Messianic prophecies, over 300 of them. And so they had an awful lot of prophecies there, you know, that, that gave the, the time of his birth, where he would be born, how he would be born, what type of a person he would be in his mission, etc., etc. I mean, so everything was very detailed in the Messianic prophecies. So there was no reason why they should have missed out on it. But notice with me the second thing that they were doing to prophecy. I think that the most dynamic messianic prophecy in the Bible is, is the sanctuary. And the, and the whole Jewish economy really, but the sanctuary in particular, because there gave... To the children of Israel, that sanctuary gave to the children of Israel a very, very detailed description of his mission. Absolutely crystal clear. That he wasn't coming as a king. He was coming as a lamb to be slaughtered. You see, and I, everything there really detailed the first coming of Jesus. Crystal clear. And by the way, the servant of the Lord actually states that's the case. Let me read to you Acts of the Apostles, page 14. And I will read a couple of statements that say the same thing. But there are, you can find them in, in many other places, but these three will be sufficient to, to establish um, our position on here. Acts of the Apostles, page 14, she says, Christ was the foundation of the Jewish economy, the whole system of types and symbols. Now keep those things in your mind. The whole system of types and symbols was a compacted prophecy, prophecy of the gospel a presentation in which were bound up the promises of, re of redemption. Now, here very clearly she talked about the sanctuary of the Jewish economy and of course the sanctuary is represented there in the types and symbols. And she says that was what? What did it represent? A, a compacted prophecy. So we know very clearly that the sanctuary and in the symbols that were used within the sanctuary was a prophecy. Alright? So it's, it's just as much as prophecy as the book of Daniel Revelation. Because it's the prophecy of the gospel. Again, she says the same thing in Desire of Ages, page 211. She says, So far as it was of divine institution, the entire system of Judaism was a compacted prophecy of the gospel. Again, she uses the word prophecy. You'll find it again in Review and Herald, February 21, 1899. She said, We have yet to learn that the whole Jewish economy is a compacted prophecy of the gospel. It is the gospel in figures. Another word used for symbols or types or whatever, but it's synonymous to that. And so very clearly that the servant of the Lord makes it crystal clear that the sanctuary, being types and figures and, and so on, was a prophecy of the gospel, of the first coming of Jesus. Now, watch what the Jews were doing to symbols and types and all the rest in prophecy. In prophecy. 
The Desire of Ages, page 29. As they, the Jews, departed from God, the Jews in a great deal or in a great degree, lost sight of the teaching of the ritual service. Now, what you define for me the ritual service. What was it? Sanctuary. It's all the rest exactly. Sanctuary. Let me read that again, because I want you to get the impact where she's going to take us on this statement. As they departed from God, the Jews in a great deal lost sight of, of the teaching of the ritual service. Now, they lost sight of it. And the sanctuary service was made up of what? Types and symbols. It was a compacted what? Prophecy of the gospel. Therefore, they lost sight of the significance of those symbols in prophecy as when they departed from God. She goes on to say, What's the number? What's the number? That's Desire of Ages, page 29. She says this, That service had been instituted by Christ Himself. In every part, it was a symbol of Him. See, she always uses that word again, symbol. And it had been full of vitality and spiritual beauty. But the Jews lost the spiritual life from their ceremonies and clung to the dead forms. Well, as they departed from God, they lost the true significance of the, of the symbolism there in the sanctuary. And, and they just simply lost the real meaning. And, and, there, and that, that was dealing with prophecy. And so they began to lose sight of the true meaning of the symbolism in prophecy. Notice again, she makes another statement in Fundamentals of Christian Education. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 397 and 398. She says this, The teachers of the Jewish nation profess to educate the youth to understand the purity and excellence of the laws of, the, of that kingdom which they had, that is to stand forever and ever. But they perverted truth and purity. Though they said of themselves, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we, yet they crucified the originator of all the Jewish economy, him to whom all things, all their ordinances pointed. They failed to discern the veiled mystery of godliness. Christ, Jesus, remained veiled to them. Now, why did Jesus remain veiled to them? Because they, as they departed from God, they lost sight of the significance of those symbols. And so they lost sight of the true mission and, and they could not recognize Jesus. That's why he says Jesus remained veiled to them. She goes on to say this, The truth, the life, the heart of all their service was disregarded. They held and still hold the mere husk, the shadows, the figures symbolizing the true, a figure for the time appointed that they might discern the true became so perverted by their own inventions that their eyes were blinded. Now, what was perverted? She goes, it says that it was the symbols that pointed forward to the truth. They had perverted it so much that Jesus remained veiled. She goes on to say, they did not realize that type met antitype in the death of Jesus Christ. The greater their perversion of the figures and symbols the more confused their minds became so that they could not see the perfect fulfillment of the Jewish economy instituted and established by Christ and pointed to Him as the substance. Why, the more they began to pervert symbols and prophecy <laughs> and reinterpret them, why, the more they got confused. Crystal clear. 
And then in Review and Herald, in Review and Herald, March 21, 1893, she said, Satan had so beclouded the understanding of even the chosen people of God that in their separation from God they could not discern sacred things. The prophecies were made so indistinct that truth, precious above gold and silver or precious stones, was buried beneath a mass of rubbish. And then she goes on to talk about how the, 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 that not only prophecy was perverted, but then also the Sabbath was perverted. She says this, The rubbish of human inventions, maxims and, uh, maxims and traditions hid the true character. And so what was the mash of, mass of rubbish that hid the true significance of all these things? Why, it was what? It was the traditions of men. She goes on to say, Jesus Christ was the foundation of the whole Jewish economy. He established the sacrificial offerings which typified himself. The whole system of types and symbols was one compacted prophecy of the gospel, a presentation of Christianity. And so very crystal clear, there's no question about it, that she simply indicates that they were perverting symbolism in prophecy. The first thing, I'll go back to the first point, they were misapplying and, and, and reinterpreting the prophecies. Second thing they were doing is misapplying and misinterpreting the symbols. Now notice the third thing they were doing, and this is in relationship to, to the symbolism and, and all the rest in prophecy. Right? I want you to look at this. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. If you look there with me, John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And I want you to notice with me, please, verse 19. Now, what I'm asking on this point, when we come to this third point, this is in relationship to symbolism and so on, notice what the Jews were doing. Watch what they were doing to symbolism. John chapter 2, verse 19 says this, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? Now, let me ask you a question. How did they understand the meaning of Jesus' words when he said, destroyed this temple? Literally. They took it literally, didn't they? They actually thought he meant what temple? That's right, the Jerusalem temple. But... Notice verse 21. What does it say? He was talking about his body. So one of the things, and I'm going to take you, there's just a few texts. I'll show you a few passages throughout the book of John and other places. But when Jesus spoke words of, that were symbolic, that had symbols and they were figures and types, they, kept, they took it literally. So when it said temple... They said that was temple, literal temple. Right? Now, notice with me in John chapter 3. Notice with me John chapter 3. Here's the story of Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Notice what Jesus said in verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? Now, notice Nicodemus' response. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be, and be born? Now, 
How did Nicodemus perceive the words when Jesus said, must be born again? He took it literally, didn't he? But how was it to be interpreted? Spiritually, symbolically, see? So being born again became a symbol, a type. Yeah, that's right. It does show that a person's not under the Spirit when they take things literal, when it should be symbolic. Um... Uh, just for the sake of time, you know, I, I have a whole bunch of them here I could give you. Um, but they say the same thing. They do the same thing. Let me give them to you here. Uh, in John chapter 4, <coughs> verses 7 and 8. Also in verses 30 through 34. Very clearly um, show that when Jesus came to them. Well, let's, let me just read this one to you. In verse 7 it says this. Uh, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me the drink. For his disciples are gone away unto the city to buy what? All right, he went out there to go buy food. Now, Jesus was alone. The disciples went to Samaria, to the city of Samaria, and there to go get some food for him. Right? So a, Samaritan, a woman comes up, he says, Give me something to drink. Okay? Now, watch what happens. Look at me in verse 30. After this whole conversation with the woman is finished, then they went out of the city and came unto him. The disciples came out of the city, went to Jesus Christ, right? And why did they? Why were they going to the city to do what? Get, food. Get food, right? Now watch this. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, "Master, eat." But he said unto them, "I have meat to eat that you know not of." Therefore said the disciples one to another, "Hath any man brought him aught to eat?" They took it literal, didn't they? But what was Jesus talking about? Look at me in verse 34. Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. That's what Jesus meant. And so they kept taking everything literal. I mean, you can find this again in John chapter 6, verses 48 to 52. John chapter 6, verses 48 to 52, and then verse 63, where Jesus said, Except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the Jews got so angry, it says that they said... How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? They actually thought he was going to like pull off his pinky, I guess, or whatever, and just say, here, start eating. That's what they actually thought. And, and, and they took it literal. Then in verse 63, it actually tells you what Jesus meant. He meant, unless you eat of the Word of God daily and absorb it in your life, you can't enter heaven. That's what he meant by saying, taking my flesh and drinking my blood. Because, you see, who is the Word? Jesus. Jesus is the Word. And that's what he meant when he said that. And so they misunderstood that. And how about John 11? John 11, that's a classic story. I want you to turn there with me, John chapter 11, because this one's a very classic story uh, about it. John 11, notice with me, verse 11. These things saith he, and after he hath said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of the sleep. Then said the disciples, Lord, if he sleepeth, he shall do well. Right? Jesus said, well, Lazarus is sleeping. I go to wake him up out of his sleep. And they said, hey, Oh, Lord, if he's sleeping, well, that's good. Leave him alone. He's, you know, sleep is good for you when you're sick, right? Yeah. Right. Well, that's what they were thinking. What did Jesus say? He goes on to say this. In, in verse 13, How be it Jesus spake of his? But they thought that he had spoken what? Of taking rest in? Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Again, you know, on, I, I, over and over, it goes to show you, the Jews kept taking everything literally when it should have been understood symbolically. With a spiritual understanding, they should have understood these things. Now, you can find also in Matthew chapter 17, 10 through 13, there they thought that Elijah was actually going to come. 
Literally. They thought Elijah would literally return. And Jesus had to correct them because he said that John the Baptist was Elijah. That John fulfilled the ministry and the prophecies of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of Elijah. And then you can find it also, and I want to give you this text, and you can cross-reference this with a, a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. Deuteronomy 6, 8. Well, there it's referring to this. Let me simply explain this to you. I'm not going to go, and I'm just going to give you a little explanation. Where God told Moses to tell the children of Israel to, to you know, put the Scriptures in their hands and their, and their minds. Now, that's basically what it's talking about there in Deuteronomy 6, 8. And then in Desire of Ages, page 6, 12, she goes on to tell you that the Jews took that literally. That's right. They put the parchment up there and you know, so on, and they put it on their wrist. And to this day, to this very day, they take that literally. That's right. And so, but she goes on to say that that's not what should have been done. What should have been done, what God really meant was that the Word of God should have been meditated upon day and night and that your thoughts should be holy reflecting the word of God and that everything that you see your countenance and your whole being should reflect the will of God through the word of God and your hands whatever your hands do they should be honest and have integrity these types of things that's what he meant in Deuteronomy 6.8 but the Jews lost sight of that they took a literal when they should have understood it in a symbolic manner and so they were taking symbolism literally all the time all the time yeah, well, that's the, when you, you, you obscure your vision, she says. Pride obscured their vision. In Desire of Ages, page 389 through 391, she makes this statement, and this is in reference to John chapter 6, when Jesus said, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. All right? She's, ta- she's making reference to this conversation. She says this, quote, The same truth that was symbolized in the Paschal service was taught in the words of Christ. In other words, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. The same truth in the, in the, in the Paschal service, you know, when Jesus was, the, the lamb was slain and so on, so on, was the same truth taught in that. But it was still undiscerned. Now the rabbis exclaimed angrily, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They affected to understand his words in the same literal sense as did Nicodemus when he asked, how can a man be born when he's old? By misconstruing his words, they hoped to prejudice the people against him. Christ did not soften down his symbolical presentation. The unbelieving Jews refused to see any except the most literal meaning in the Savior's words. And so very clear that one of the things they were doing to symbolism was they were, they were taking it literal. Taking everything so literal. Now, let's go over those three things. They were taking, in prophecy now, we're dealing with prophecy, what they were doing. They were misapplying and reinterpreting prophecy. Right? Second thing was what? Misinterpreting and reapplying what? Symbolism. And the third thing that led them into this path of reinterpreting symbolism was they were taking symbolism how? Literally. Literally. Now, Ellen White says that what Satan did to the Jews at the first coming of Jesus in regard to prophecy, he is going to attempt to do to Seventh-day Adventists with the books of what? Daniel. Daniel and the Revelation. And I want you to know he has succeeded. 
he has succeeded. Seventh-day Adventists are reinterpreting and reapplying the prophecies of the books of Daniel and the Revelation. They are misapplying and reinterpreting symbolism in the books of Daniel and the Revelation. They are taking symbolism found in the books of Daniel and the Revelation literally. Just like the Jews did. He has pulled it off. But thank the good Lord for the little remnant clinging to the truth. Where does this type of studying or this type of method of interpretation lead you in? Will it lead you to heaven? Listen to these statements that the servant of the Lord makes in regard to this. Okay? Desire of Ages, page 29 and 30, she says this, While the Jews desired the advent of the Messiah, they had no true conception of His mission. Now, they desired the advent of the Messiah, but they had no true concept of his mission. You see, many of us may have a desire for Jesus to return, but we may have no true conception of what he's going to be like when he returns. It can happen to us. So you can be sincere, but sincerity doesn't make a man right, does it? Exactly. You see, there are millions of people out there keeping sunny, and they're sincere about that. They really are. Now, let's, you know, we don't want to condemn their sincerity because they're sincere people, and, you know, and, and there are a lot of them out there are God's children. But, does that make, just because of their sincerity, does that make Sunday holy? No, Sunday's still an abomination as a day of worship. While the Jews desired the advent of the Messiah, they had no true conception of His mission. They did not seek redemption from sin, but deliverance from the Romans. They looked for the Messiah to come as a conqueror to break the oppressor's power and exalt Israel to universal dominion. Now, why were they looking for that type of a of Messiah? Exactly. They, ex- they mixed everything up, didn't they? They misinterpreted the prophecies. Everything that applied to the second coming, they put to the first. So they were looking for a conquering king. See, all the second coming prophecies tell that Jesus will conquer and rule like with a rod of iron. You can just go right through the Bible, you'll find that out. Crystal clear. He'll rule as a king. He actually he says that, that the, the nations he, he, he shall put under his feet. Now, but you see their whole concept. Now listen to this final statement that she makes. Thus, on the basis of all of this, they, they, they were desiring the advent of the Messiah. But they had a false concept of His return, didn't they? On the basis of this, she says, thus the way was prepared for them to reject the Savior. It was preparing them to reject Jesus, not to receive Jesus. Desire of Ages, page 212. The leaders... I'm sorry, the Jewish leaders had studied the teachings of the prophets concerning the kingdom of the Messiah. But they had done done this not with a sincere desire to know truth, but with the purpose of finding evidence to sustain their ambitious hopes. When Christ came in a manner contrary to their expectations, they would not receive Him. And in order to justify themselves, they tried to prove Him a deceiver. Now, can you believe that? When Jesus came in a manner... Contrary to their expectations, they would not receive Jesus and they went to the point to try to prove Him a deceiver. Now what led them to that point? Misinterpreting, misapplying the prophecies. They had misunderstood those things. 
And so here, were the, here, here they were looking over here for the fulfillment of prophecies, you see. And Jesus was coming over there. And when Jesus was coming about, and he was the literal fulfillment of all these prophecies, and when he came and said, I, you know, here I am, the Messiah, they said, you can't be the Messiah because, you see, you don't match up to the, our expectations of prophecy. And, uh, and so when Jesus came in a matter contrary to their expectations, they would not receive him. Review and Herald, September 5, 1899. Watch this. She said, the leaders in Israel professed to understand the prophecies, but they had received false ideas in regard to the manner of Christ's coming. Satan had deceived them, and all the glories of Christ's second advent they applied to his first appearing. All the wonderful events clustering around his second coming, they looked for at his first. Therefore, therefore, when he, Christ, came, they were not prepared to receive him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John 1.11 You see, how you understand prophecy will determine how you will prepare yourself for Christ's return. You think it doesn't matter, you say. You think, oh, it's prophecy. I've got to just learn about the gospel. Listen, friends. My Bible tells me that all the scriptures was inspired of a God, and all is profitable for righteousness. And that includes the books of Daniel and the Revelation. You see, there's no such thing as a Christless scripture. <laughs> I don't believe in that. Or a God, you know, a gospel, you know, where, where this is just a gospel scripture and this isn't. All of it's gospel. So very clearly, that on the basis of them reinterpreting the prophecies and misunderstanding the prophecies, she says it prepared them for the for their for their rejection of Jesus. Second selected messages, page one eleven. She said, "The Jews had the Old Testament scriptures and supposed themselves conversant with them, but they had made a woeful mistake." The prophecies that refer to the glorious second appearing of Christ in the clouds of heaven they regarded as referring to His first coming. Because He did not come according to their expectations, they turned away from Him. Satan knew just how to take these men in his net and deceive and destroy them. And so, friends, we find very clearly that those that are crying, we've got new light. Why, precious light has come down from heaven. We have a new interpretation. And it's God-ordained, they say. And they think that this is going to prepare people for heaven. I listen, friends, it's not preparing you for heaven no more than worshiping Buddha. What they think is of God is from the devil himself. We were warned by the spirit of prophecy very clearly that what Satan did to the Jews at the first coming, he will attempt to do to God's people at the second coming with the books of Daniel and Revelation. And it is actually coming to pass identical for, as, as, to a T. Right down to the T. Right down to the line. It's actually taking place. Now, I'm going to read a statement to you what I, I think is the most powerful statement I have come across in the spirit of prophecy in regard to, you know... Dealing with prophecy and what, how she deals with it. If I would just have this one statement, you know, all that I read you here. And, you know, I only read you one of my lectures. I've only gone through one lecture. And I have six others that I give on this lecture. I go right through. But um, if I didn't have any of it, you know, any of the statements or well, even what I gave today. If I just had this, this is sufficient for me. Because it's so clear. It's not a gray statement. It's a 
very clear black and white statement. And I want you to listen to what she says. This is Second Selected Messages, page 101 to 104. Now I'm just going to read parts of it. You can read the whole thing. I, I would encourage you that you do. But I want you to listen to what she says. Quote, I have, been, I have not been able to sleep since half past one o'clock. I was bearing to Brother T a message which the Lord had given me for him. The peculiar views he holds are a mixture of truth and error. The great way marks of truth showing, our, showing us our bearings in prophetic history are to be carefully guarded, lest they should be torn down and replaced with theories that would bring confusion rather than genuine light. I have been cited to the very erroneous theories that have been presented over and over again. Those who advocated these theories presented scripture quotations, but they misapplied and misinterpreted them. The theories supposed to be correct were incorrect, and yet, and yet many thought them to be the very theories to be brought before the people of God. The prophecies of Daniel and John are to be diligently studied. There have been one and another who, in studying their Bibles, thought they discovered great light and new theories, but these have not been correct. The Scripture is all true, but by misapplying the Scripture, men arrive at wrong conclusions. Some will take the truth applicable to their time and place it in the future. Now listen. Some will take the truth applicable to their time, and where are they going to put it? Launch out of the future. Now listen to the next statement. Events in the train, a train of prophecy that had their fulfillment away in the past are made future. Prophecies that have been fulfilled, historical prophecies, are made future. And thus, by these theories, the faith of some is undermined. Why, she says it's a mixture of truth and error. She goes on to say this, From the light that the Lord has been pleased to give me, you are in danger of doing the same work, presenting before others truths which have had their place and done their specific work for the time in the history of the faith of God's people. You recognize these facts in Bible history as true, but apply them to the future. Man, that's exactly what's taking place today in the Adventist church. They have therefore still in their proper place in the chain of events that have made us a people what we are today. And as such, they are to be presented to those who are in darkness of error. Now who is that? Non-Adventists. Those beautiful prophecies are not to be reinterpreted and reimplied and thrown into the future. Why, she said, leave them alone because they have their proper bearing in place and they show us who we are. And they still have an effect upon those that are in darkness. <clears throat> she says, many theories were advanced bearing a semblance of truth but so mingled and with misinterpreted and misapplied scriptures that they led to dangerous errors very well do we know how every point of truth was established and 
and the seal set upon it by the Holy Spirit of God. And all the time voices were heard, Here is truth. I have truth. Follow me. But the warnings came. Go ye not after them. I have not sent them. But they ran. Jeremiah 23, 21. That which was truth then is truth today. Amen. That's me. I said that. She didn't say that. But the voices do not cease to be heard. This is truth. I have new light. But these new lights in prophetic lines are manifest in misapplying the word of God and setting the people of God adrift without an anchor to hold them. Those who have set themselves to study out new theories have a mixture of truth and error combined. And after trying to make these things prominent, have demonstrated that they have not kindled their taper for the divine altar and have gone out in darkness. Where does this type of interpretation lead you? Does it lead you to prepare for heaven? No, my friends. She says it will lead you to prepare yourself to reject Jesus. That's what she said. That's what the Bible clearly indicates. And those today we're hearing voices, I have new light. I have the truth. She says, don't you go after them. Today, Seventh-day Adventists are reinterpreting the prophecies of the books of Daniel and the Revelation. Throwing the historical prophecies in the future, reinterpreting them, reapplying them. They are taking symbolism and prophecy and reinterpreting and misapplying. And they are taking symbolism literal in prophecy, such as the day-year concept. Did you know that? They are taking the day the 1260 years, they are taking that to mean now three and a half years. And I could go right down the list. Daniel 7 is reinterpreted. Daniel 2 is reinterpreted. Revelation 13 is reinterpreted. Uh, and, and many, many other prophets. Daniel 8 is reinterpreted. The 2300 days is reinterpreted. Uh, uh, the 1260 years is reinterpreted. And on and on and on. And all these Adventists are saying, we've got great light. Beautiful light. Listen, friends, it's apostasy. It's heresy. It's kindled from the hellish torch of Satan himself. And God forbid that you and I would fall into the trap of listening to these voices that are crying out today in the Adventist church that they say they have, quote, new light and what they think to be truth. Listen, friends, don't you let them deceive you. The spirit of prophecy, what I've just read to you, is so crystal clear. As I say, just this statement alone, to me, is enough. But there's a, a mounting evidence that I have discovered, and others have, that, that are crystal, make it crystal clear. Why these are nothing but wolves trying to deceive God's people. And you know, I want to show you, I, I didn't read this. this is the, I haven't read this anywhere in the lectures that I've given so far. But uh, I think I'm going to do it right now. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar, or when God gave the vision to Nebuchadnezzar, there in Daniel two? You remember that? What 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 did he see? He saw a great image, right, of a man, had a head of gold, right, breast and arms of, belly and thighs of, legs, and feet of, all right, and then he had a stone cut out without hands, right, all right. Now that was a vision that God gave to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Now, the interpretation 
of that vision. Daniel actually tells him what it is. He said, Thou art the... So a head of gold represented who? And then the next power to come? Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. Remember, two arms. Medo-Persia. Ran with two horns. Medo-Persia. All right? So they had the Medo-Persian Empire, right? Then came Greece. Then came Rome. Then the ten nations there of Western Europe and so on. All right? And then the rock represented who? Jesus. Jesus Christ, right? All right. Now, what? Now, let me read a statement to you in Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 410, 411. Now, what, this is the most profound thing when I found this in Prophets and Kings. I couldn't believe it when I came across this. This is in Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 410, 411. She says, The most interesting and important history is given in Daniel 2. The interpretation was given showing the remarkable events that were to transpire in prophetic history. Now, she says that the fulfillment of this prophecy was what? History. So we know that it's a prophecy of the past, at least, at least up to the toe or, or up to the legs of iron, right? We know that that's all been passed, okay? We know we're down to the toes, okay? We know that. But for the most part, it's, it's history, right? And we expect the rock. Well, that's the next thing to come. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is in Prophets and Kings, page 405, or 504 and 505. Now, this is in reference to Daniel chapter 3 and the image of gold. Now, listen to what happened. She says, quote, The words, Thou art this head of gold, had made a deep impression upon the ruler's mind. Verse 38. The wise men of his realm, taking advantage of this and of his return to idolatry, supposed that they had made make an image similar to the one seen in his dream and set it up where all might behold the head of gold, which had been interpreted as represented his kingdom. Pleasing, or pleased with flattering suggestion, he determined to carry it out and to go even farther. Instead of reproducing the image as he had seen it, he would excel the original. His image should not deteriorate in value from the head to the feet, but should be entirely of gold. Listen, symbolic throughout of Babylon as an eternal, indestructible, all-powerful kingdom which should break in pieces all other kingdoms and stand forever. 405, she says, the king and his counselors of state determined that by every means possible they would endeavor to exalt Babylon as supreme, worthy of universal allegiance. The symbolic representation by which God had revealed to, to the king and people, his purpose for the nations of the earth was now to be made to serve for the glorification of human power. Daniel's interpretation was rejected. And what was his interpretation? It was historical. It was rejected and forgotten. Truth was to be misinterpreted and misapplied. Oh, oh I hope you realize what this is talking about. The symbol designed of heaven to unfold to the minds of men important events of the future was to be used to hinder the spread of the knowledge of God desired the world to receive. 
Thus, through the devices of ambitious men, Satan was seeking to throw out the divine purpose for the human race. Do you realize what she said? You know what Nebuchadnezzar did? He misapplied and reinterpreted prophecy. And guess what he did? He set this image up and guess what? Everyone at the sound of the music all bowed down to his interpretation. And it was a false interpretation. It was the interpretation of misapplying and, mis and, and misinterpreting historical prophecy. That's right there in Daniel chapter 2 and 3. You see, where is this kind of prophecy going to lead you to when you misapply and reinterpret a historical prophecy? Listen, I firmly believe you'll worship the image of the beast. You will come to the point where you will reject the true message and you will worship the beast in his image. And you will be prepared, not for heaven, but for total destruction. History repeats itself. That's right. We're here. We're here. That's where we're at. And Adventists are drinking it up. Thinking this beautiful truth. What is saying? Prophesy unto us smooth things. Yeah. Like they did in the bowl. Oh yes, calm sermons and so on. Peaceful. That's right. That's what's happening today. I pray that you and I might take heed and please warn the brothers and sisters. I, uh, you know, this is such foolish nonsense, and uh, and. Stay with the historical positions, brothers and sisters. It's solid foundations. It's been true. It's been tried and proven, and it'll stand the test of eternity, friends. Believe me, it'll stand. My prayer is that God will bless us and keep us, and may we have eyes to see and ears to hear the voice of our Lord and not the voice of strangers. Let us pray. Father in heaven, keep us, dear Lord, and bless us. Help us, Lord, to... Be wise to the deceptions of Satan. We know that, Lord, as he is attempted to destroy the children of Israel at the first coming, he will do the same with the second coming with God's people, particularly Seventh-day Adventists, in the prophecies of the books of Daniel and Revelation. And I pray, that, Lord, that we will not be foolish enough to listen to those voices out there crying after to destroy God's people. But may we heed the call that you've given to us to come back to the firm foundation, mm -hmm. to the old paths, whereby we may find rest unto our souls. Mm -hmm. Give us now, Father, grace and strength is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.